Some of you may have noticed the title to my sermon this morning, and just in case anyone's alarmed, I want to start by relieving everyone's mind and letting you know that this will not be a sermon about me losing track of my youngest child. When, uh, when Rachel and I named our third little girl Glory, while I have no regrets about that decision, I'm also not sure that we thought through all of the alternate meanings that it would give to some of my sermon titles. In any case, I'm continuing this morning my occasional series from 2 Corinthians. The last sermon I preached in this series was back in January, and so a bit of reorientation might be in order. 2 Corinthians, you'll remember, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth over several issues and to combat the influence of several false apostles in that church who were opposed to Paul. Paul deals with a number of topics in it, and a central one being the place of suffering, struggle, and crosses, both in his own ministry and in the Christian life in general. And then in chapter 4, in the verses right before the passage we'll be looking at this morning, Paul explains this. He says, This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory, beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul ends the last point, which we looked at back in January, by referring to the eternal weight of glory that God is preparing for his people. In our text this morning, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-10, through 10, Paul goes on to elaborate on how we should think about that weight of glory. In fact, these ten verses are something of an aside in Paul's argument a break in the case that he's been making in order to address in more detail what that glory is that God has prepared for us, where we should locate it, and what it will mean for our lives right now. So with that in mind, please hear from our text, for, from God's Word for us this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-10. through 10. The Apostle Paul writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house made not with hands, excuse me, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is God's Word. Our text this morning is a somewhat complicated one, and we're going to have to look at it from a few different angles to unpack it. And I think the best way to approach it may be to ask it three questions. First, we'll ask what problematic views is Paul addressing here? Second, what alternative view is Paul advocating? And third, what difference does Paul think it makes in our lives one way or the other? 
So what problematic views is Paul confronting? What alternative view is he putting out there? And why does he think this really matters? Why is he spending time on this? So first, what problematic views is Paul addressing? What we see in our text is that Paul is addressing two false views of where we should locate ultimate glory. Paul is responding to the fact that we tend to either locate ultimate glory in the here and now, or we tend to locate ultimate glory in a future escape from this physical world. So we tend to locate ultimate glory either in the here and now, or to locate it in a future escape from this physical world. Let's look at each of those one at a time. So first, Paul addresses our tendency to locate ultimate glory in the here and now. We see this in verse 6. Paul points out, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Commentator Paul Barnett points out that in both his letters to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul seems to be repeatedly combating an over-realized eschatology among the Corinthians. In other words, he's repeatedly responding to a view that they hold that overstates how much glory can be achieved in the here and now of this life. And so what we see here is that Paul seems to be emphasizing that as long as we are here in these perishable bodies, these tents, as he calls them in verse 1, then we are not fully in the presence of the Lord. And therefore we have not achieved the ultimate glory that the Lord has in store for us. The implication of him making that point is that some in Corinth may have been teaching that ultimate glory really was achievable in this life, in the here and now. This view... The position that argued that glory was achievable in the here and now seems to have had a particular spiritual element in Corinth. While we do not see many self-identifying Christians today saying that ultimate glory can be reached in this life through Christ, I also wonder if we don't have our own form of that view in the secular culture around us. And I wonder if it's not a false view of glory that many of us Christians fall prey to as well. Maybe more often than we think. Because the truth is that we're being promised glory in the here and now everywhere that we look. Think about most ads that you see. Think about the images that they present to you. As James K.A. Smith, among many others, frequently points out, the ads that surround us in our culture do not primarily hold out claims about the products they're promoting, but the primary thing they seek to depict is an image of the good life. In other words, they present us with a little promise of glory, in the here and now. Whether it's the latest style, the newest piece of technology, that new car, that dream house, or something else, for many, if not all of us, there are products or objects out there that seem to offer, in our imagination, some taste of ultimate glory in the here and now. They create a deep longing in us. We imagine what our lives might be like if we just had that thing. And we imagine that thing granting us just a taste of glory in the here and now. But of course, it doesn't stop with products and advertising. It's really all around us. In our careers, we often imagine what success might look like. We hunger to climb the ladder, and we daydream about arriving, about reaching the height of our career. And if we're honest about it, about how we imagine it, we have to admit that more often than not, it resembles a dream of achieving glory, in the here and now. And you can find it other places as well. In our culture, we're surrounded by images of idealized bodies, often finely toned, sometimes surgically enhanced, and almost always airbrushed and photoshopped to supposed perfection. 
They're around us in our culture in billboards, on screens, on magazine covers, whether we look for them or not. And of course, far more are available if we decide to go looking. And if we're honest, we'll recognize that those images each try to offer us some form of glory in the here and now. If we're honest, we can recognize that these, what often draws us towards these images deep down is a belief that if we could either look like those images ourselves or possess someone who looked like those images, then we would find some kind of ultimate glory in the here and now. And it's present beyond that. In the perfected in looking houses and meals and crafts on Pinterest or in magazines, in the promises of the latest self-help or child-rearing book that we're reading, in the vacation pictures of others on social media that we feel envy over. Everywhere are promises of glory in the here and now. If we just had that thing, if we just looked like that, if we could just have that experience, if we could just achieve that goal, then we too could have glory in the here and now. Or so we often think. Of course, when we step back for a minute, we know it's a lie. If we think about it critically, we know that these things cannot deliver what they seem to offer. We know the promises are hollow. We know that they will not give glory in the here and now. But so often, without really thinking, often unconsciously, we begin to live as if they could. We begin to live as if these areas of life could give us ultimate glory in the here and now. And bit by bit, we adjust our lives according to that. This is, of course, what the Bible refers to as idolatry. And idolatry has a number of traits, but one consistent trait in our setting, as with the Corinthians, is that it promises glory in the here and now. Another consistent trait, however, is that it cannot really deliver that. So the first problematic view that the Apostle Paul points out is our tendency to locate ultimate glory in the here and now. The other problematic view sounds a lot like its opposite. Rather than look for glory in the here and now, we begin to locate ultimate glory in a future escape from this physical world. This point comes out in verses 1 through 4, where Paul makes it clear that while his hope for glory is not something he expects to achieve in the here and now, it's also not merely a hope for spiritual escape from this world. It is not a hope for future disembodiment. We see this in verses 3 and 4, where Paul talks about how we groan not to leave this world, not to leave our bodies, not as he puts it to be found naked or unclothed, but rather that what we desire, what we groan for, what we long for, is an even more solid and substantial physical body than the one that we have right now. We'll consider that a bit more in a few moments, but for now, let's observe that just as Paul points out the flaws in the view that glory is achievable in the here and now, so Paul is also certain, especially in verses 3 and 4, to identify and oppose any view that would seek to locate glory in an escape from the physical world. Paul's future hope is not located in a future disembodied existence. But historically, the church has struggled with this error even more than the first one, perhaps. Historically, we Christians have tended to disparage the physical world and along with it, our physical bodies. One example that immediately came to mind as I thought about this was the gospel song, I'll Fly Away. Now, I should say that Rachel and the girls and I 
really enjoy that song musically. It plays at times in our home, on our Pandora station. Olive and Rosie like to dance to it. But there's one section in particular where the words come on, and if I'm paying attention, they usually make me cringe. The song goes, When the shadows of this life have gone, I'll fly away. Like a bird from these prison walls, I'll fly. I'll fly away. Oh, how glad and happy when we meet. I'll fly away. No more cold iron shackles on my feet. I'll fly away. The song speaks of shadows, of prison walls, of cold iron shackles. I'm pretty sure that the song is talking about the physical world and our physical bodies there. The song is about what we leave behind upon death, and it seems to celebrate the idea of being freed from a physical body, of spiritually flying away from it. And the views that are expressed in that song are not new. They're not original. They're found in many places. But they are highly problematic. They come from early Greek philosophy that disparaged the physical world and the body. And that view still exists today in the outlook of many Christians. We far too easily look at the physical world negatively as a thing to be escaped. But here's the thing. As you read 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5, it is very clear that when it comes to the physical body, Paul did not want to fly away from it. He has to be sure he longed to be with the Lord. He talks about that in the next paragraph. But his ultimate hope was that his body would be renewed and remade, swallowed up in life, further clothed, made more solid and substantial and incorruptible, not discarded as if it were a cold, shackled prison for his soul. Unfortunately, the Christian church has suffered from this negative view of the body and the physical world on and off for much of its history. We are interested in the spiritual world, we often maintain, by which we usually mean the non-material world instead of the physical. We don't bother ourselves as much with maintaining this physical world as we concern ourselves with the spiritual realm. And since the splits between the liberal and conservative churches in America beginning in the early 20th century, Conservative Christians have far too often, not always, certainly, but too often, tended to simply focus on the spiritually hungry and the spiritually needy, leaving the physically hungry and needy for others to care for. What mattered, Christians seemed to say, far too often, was the heart, the spiritual, the non-material, and the physical world was far less important. Of course, history and God's providence often has a way of showing us our own errors. And so the church that once responded to a modern materialistic world by sometimes overemphasizing the priority of the non-material world over the physical world, and by overemphasizing the heart while disparaging the meaning of the body, that same church, a few generations later, now finds itself arguing with a postmodern secular cultures, culture that bodies and their physical realities really do matter. And that what we do sexually, whom we marry, and how we identify ourselves as individuals cannot be determined wholly from the heart, but must take seriously the importance and the meaning of our physical bodies. As we deal with those new cultural challenges, more and more Christians are beginning to see what Paul already asserted 2,000 years ago. That the physical, that the bodily does matter. That this physical world is not just a ship that will one day sink, and that therefore our works in this world, our works in the body are not just polishing or vandalizing, as the case may be, the brass on the Titanic. This world matters. 
Because ultimate glory is not found in a future escape from this physical world. And so we see in answer to our first question, what problematic views is Paul addressing? That Paul is bringing to our attention our tendency either to locate ultimate glory in the here and now, or to locate ultimate glory in a future escape from the physical world. So if Paul is against these two options, what then is his alternative? To answer that question, we need to look a bit closer at our text. And so let's take it in two pieces. Let's first hear once more verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So what exactly is Paul talking about here? Well, what he's laying out are three different states of being. He speaks of our current body, of our future resurrection bodies, and of the disembodied state we'll experience between our death and the final resurrection. So let's look a bit closer to see how he's doing this. Let's look first at verse 1. Here we see that Paul contrasts the tent, a phrase that's often used for our current human bodies in the Bible, with a house from God, referring to our resurrection bodies. Now there's actually some debate about whether the house described here is a reference to the renewed physical bodies we'll receive at the resurrection, at Christ's return to the earth, or whether they are a reference to our disembodied states directly after death. But there are several reasons to believe that Paul here is referring to our future physical resurrection bodies and not to our state after death. For one thing, in verse 1, he speaks of these bodies as if they are more substantial than our current ones, not less. If our current bodies are tents, this future body is a house built by God, something eternal. It sounds more solid, not less. Secondly, Paul contrasts this house that we look forward to with being naked in verse 3 and being unclothed in verse 4. In other words, he seems to be intentionally distinguishing between this future house and any disembodied non-physical state where just our soul will dwell with God. And third, the language at the end of verse 4 where he speaks of receiving this house in terms of being further clothed and saying what is mortal will be swallowed up in life seems to parallel his language in 1 Corinthians 15, where we know he's speaking of our resurrection bodies. There he describes the physical resurrection as the mortal putting on immortality, and of death being swallowed up in victory. So it appears that Paul's focus in verses 1 through 4 is not on our disembodied state right after death, but on our future hope of being physically resurrected in a renewed physical world at Christ's return. Some might point to the fact that in this passage, Paul speaks of this new body being currently in heaven in verse 1. If it's in heaven, we might ask, doesn't that seem to imply that the focus is on our life in heaven, our spiritual disembodied life there, instead of our future resurrection lives? N.T. Wright's comments are helpful here. He points out that when Paul speaks of heaven in his letters, he's less often speaking of it as a place we will go to live once we die, and more often speaking of it in terms of being, as Wright explains, the place where the divinely intended future for the world is kept safely in store, 
against the day when, like new props being brought out from the wings on stage, it will come to birth in the renewed world. In other words, Paul does not say our new bodies are in heaven in order to assure us that that is where we will enjoy them, but to assure us that those new bodies are being kept in a secure place where we can know that they will be safe up to the day when they're given to us at the resurrection. Wright goes on to explain it like this. He says, If I assure my guests that there is champagne for them in the fridge, I am not suggesting that we all need to get into the fridge if we are to have the party. Similarly, he explains, The future body, the non-corruptible and hence eternal house, is at present in the heavens as opposed to on earth. But it will not stay there. So Paul speaks of our current life in perishable bodies. He speaks of our ultimate hope in renewed and incorruptible physical bodies at the resurrection on the day when Christ returns. But he also had something to say about where God's people go between their own death and Christ's second coming. In verses 6 through 8, he explains, We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In these verses, Paul wants to assure us that at the time of death, God's people are safe, happy, and secure with the Lord. We can and should be encouraged and comforted by this. Paul assures us that in many ways, this state of being with the Lord is far better than our current one. He says it directly. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We also need to remember that earlier in verses 1 through 4, Paul makes it clear that this disembodied state is not his ultimate hope or our ultimate glory. Because he also speaks of it as being unclothed and naked. And contrary to the Greek thinking of his time, and in fact contrary to some of the sentimental thinking of our own day, Paul had no desire to be disembodied. Paul recognized that he was not just a spirit, but a spirit and a body. And he did not look forward to the severing of spirit from body that comes at death. Even if he did look forward to the comfort he would receive in God's presence. That was a good thing. That was a thing he looked forward to, but it was not the ultimate thing that he looked forward to. And so when we put all of this together, the biblical picture of our future hope, the biblical location of ultimate glory begins to emerge. What we learn here is that upon death, as our perishable bodies rest in their graves, our souls are present with God. And with Him we experience peace, joy, and security. And that is good. And yet Paul makes it clear that this is not the end of the story. For Paul, our ultimate hope still comes with what follows that. The day when Christ will return to earth, when the trumpet will sound, and when all of Christ's people will be raised from the dead when our bodies will be resurrected and transformed into glorious, indestructible, eternal bodies, and our souls and body will be reunited, never to be separated again. And then when God renews all things, and when heaven and earth reunite as one, we will live in God's presence, and we will live in our renewed and incorruptible physical bodies on a renewed and incorruptible earth. That is the biblical hope, the biblical description of ultimate glory. So if, as we said, our tendency is to locate ultimate glory in the here and now, or to locate ultimate glory in a future escape from this physical world, Paul's alternative, the Bible's alternative, is to locate glory in the here, but not yet. 
The Bible tells us to locate glory in the here, in the renewal of this physical world, but in the not yet. It is a future hope we wait for with the return of Christ. So we see what problematic views Paul was addressing. We see what alternative view he's advocating. Then we need to ask that third question. What difference does Paul think this makes in our lives? Why does any of this really matter? Is this just fun Bible trivia? Another topic for Christians to debate about? Or does it actually mean something for our day-to-day lives right now? Paul seems to believe that it does mean something for how we live day in and day out. You can take a look again at verses 9 and 10. After reflecting on these things, Paul writes, So whether we are at home or away, meaning whether we are with God after death or in this perishable body before death, we make it our aim to please Him that is our Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. Paul here sees a connection between these two realities and how we are to live now. After indicating that our hope for glory is the hope of a bodily glory, Paul then reminds us that when we stand before the throne of Christ, we will be judged according to what we have done in the body, in this life. In other words, as our future is a bodily future, so in a sense the judgment is strongly connected to our bodily life now. So what exactly does that connection look like? We said a minute ago that for Paul, our ultimate glory is located in the here, but not yet. And it turns out that both of those elements, both the here and the not yet, shape our Christian walk now. So first, because our ultimate glory is not yet, we wait for it patiently rather than grasping for it now. Because our ultimate glory is not yet, we wait for it patiently and do not need to grasp for it now. And this news, this reminder really, that ultimate glory is unattainable in this life should actually be a relief to us. This reminder that those promises of glory in the here and now, those ones that we mentioned all around us in our culture, that those promises are a lie, that should actually bring us a measure of peace. You can think of it like this. About a mile off the coast in northeast England, there's a small tidal island called Lindisfarne. And if you walk to the coast of the mainland closest to Lindisfarne during the high tide, you will see an island. An island that, if you sat down and you thought about it, you would not try to get to it by foot or in a car. And if you wait by the shore until the tide goes down, In a few short hours, a walking path and a causeway for cars would emerge as the water level dropped down below them. And once the tide was low enough, cars and pedestrians would travel back and forth to and from the island easily. In other words, when it comes to getting to Lindisfarne, timing is key. And yet despite this obvious fact, And despite the many signs along the road and postings about the importance of timing and when it is safe and not safe to cross the causeway, according to certain tourist websites, a car gets stuck on the causeway in the water during high tide about once a month. And it's not uncommon for rescue crews to need to be dispatched by boat or air to rescue the car's occupants. You can actually find pictures and videos of such rescues online 
although I would urge you not to do that right now. And this happens on a monthly basis almost, because each time someone decides they do not need to take timing into account. They decide that they or their vehicle are strong enough to make it to the island on their own power right now, regardless of the timing of the tide. And they try, and the water rises, and they rev the engine, and the car floods with water, and soon they and their family are on the roof of their car, waving frantically for help. If you want to get to Lindisfarne, then accepting that the tides dictate when you get there is key. If you refuse to accept the timing dictated by the tides, your attempts to reach Lindisfarne could actually destroy you. But if you accept the timing that's dictated by the tides, you'll not only be safe, but you'll also be free to use your time and energy for something good and productive as you wait for the tide to drop, rather than spending both on an exercise in futility that places you in danger. And the same is true of the glory that God has prepared for us. If we refuse to accept the timing of God and the futureness of glory, it just might destroy us. We could pour our life out trying to grasp the glory in this life. We could drive into the ocean waters. We could rev the engine. We could persist in our conviction that we could really make it under our own effort now rather than later. But like those who try to drive to Lindisfarne at high tide, we will fail. But if we accept God's timing for glory, if we accept that we will not get there now, but that our calling is simply to wait patiently and to use our time and effort in service to Christ in the meantime, then we will experience not only safety, but a measure of peace. When the time is right, the path will open up, and we will stroll there on dry ground. Where are you trying to grasp that glory in this life? Where do you think you can reach some form of glorification now? Is it with your family or your career, your home or your body, your possessions or the physical possession of someone else? Where are you trying to grasp that glory now? And what would it look like in your life if you ceased that striving and devoted that effort to enjoying God's good gifts now and working instead for his glory? How would that change your life? What would that look like? Where do you need to back away from the flooded causeway and submit to God's timing for glory? That is the first implication of Paul's point here, that because our ultimate glory is not yet, we wait for it patiently rather than trying to grasp at it now. But the second implication is that because our ultimate glory is here in the body, in the physical world, the good works that we do now in the body, in the physical world, matter. Because our ultimate glory is here in the body, therefore the good works we do now in the body matter to God. And this is important because much of the work that many of us do, day in and day out, is physical, is bodily. It might be acts of love and service to a parent, a child, a spouse, or a friend. It might be a job or career where we either do physical work with our own hands or where we manage physical things for an objective. But our entire lives, in one way or another, are bodily and physical. 
Much of our labor, and especially our works of love, are bodily and physical works. So it matters whether the bodily and the physical really matter to God or not. And we too often doubt that they do. There's an episode of The Twilight Zone from 1961 that's called The Rip Van Winkle Caper. And in it, four men in 1961 rob a train of a large quantity of gold. They know that they're wanted by law enforcement, and so their plan of escape involves fleeing to Death Valley and using special glass caskets and a special combination of gases, which are designed by one of their members who has several PhDs, to put them in a state of suspended animation for 100 years, so that when they wake up in the future in 2061, they'll be forgotten as criminals, but still be rich with a large pile of gold. In other words, these men leave everything of their former lives behind and base their lives around the value of this gold. The suspended animation works for most of them, but soon the men are at one another's throats. They're constantly fighting over the gold. They make the value of the gold a central priority, and they're willing to sacrifice other things for it. As they try to trek out of Death Valley to the nearest town, one by one, they perish. At the end, one man is left walking along the road, clutching the gold he can still carry. Finally, he too keels over. And as he lay dying, a futuristic car finally pulls up, the first other person that they have seen so far. And a man from 2061 gets out and comes to the dying thief's side. The thief offers him a share of the gold in exchange for water and a ride to town, But before the man from the future can answer, the thief dies. The man from 2061 picks up the gold bar that the thief had been holding out and walks back to his car where his wife sits waiting for him. Who is it, George? What's the matter with him, she asks. Some old tramp, he answers. That's what he was. He's dead. She points to the gold bar in the man's hand. What's that, she asks. Gold, he answers. That's what he said it was. He wanted to give it to me in exchange for a lift into town. Gold, she replies. Now what in the world would he be doing with this gold? I don't know, the man answers. He was probably off his rocker. Anybody walking in the desert this time of day would be off his rocker. Can you imagine that, he goes on. He offered this to me as if it were really worth something. His wife nods in response, also puzzled. You know, she says, wasn't it worth something once, George? I mean, didn't people use gold for money? Sure, he says, about a hundred years or so ago, before they found a way of manufacturing it. And with that, the man tosses the gold onto the ground as if it were worthless and drives away. I think that if we're honest, we're sometimes worried that this could be how Jesus will one day treat our physical work, and our bodily lives lived for his kingdom. We're worried that we will one day, that we will pour ourselves out in physical and bodily works of service, in deeds of love for God and those he's put in our lives, but in deeds that are physical, that often don't feel spiritual. And that on the day of judgment, we'll present that physical and bodily work to Jesus, and he'll look at it, and smiling kindly, he'll sort of toss it aside and say, can you imagine that? This person's offering me this physical and bodily work as if it's really worth something. I know those kinds of physical things might have once seemed to matter, 
But now it's only the spiritual and the non-physical that have value in my kingdom. I think that though we may not articulate it, we often feel this way. Because we far too often look down on physical and bodily works. We assume that they have less kingdom value than something that is non-physical, something that feels more spiritual, something that feels more intellectual. But Paul here tells us that that is not the case. Christ will not, on the judgment day, disregard our physical bodily lives and labors. Both our good works done in the body and our sins done in the body will matter to him. The physical world will not pass away, but be renewed. Our bodies will not be discarded, but remade, just as Christ's body was not discarded, but remade. And he will care what we did with our bodies in this life. He will not cast it aside as if it's meaningless or worthless. Francis of Assisi comes much closer to the truth, truth Paul expresses here than we often do. Shortly after his conversion, when Francis was laboring to repair a local church, his brother saw Francis's poverty, saw Francis's financially unprofitable labor, and mockingly said to his friend with him, you might tell Francis to sell you a penny's worth of his sweat. When Francis heard this comment, he replied enthusiastically, I will sell that sweat to my Lord at a high price. In other words, Francis knew that his Lord valued his physical work more, not less, than those around him. And Francis similarly encouraged the women who formed their own order in response to his ministry, telling them that though he knew they were weary with the work of ministry, they should also have peace, because he told them, you will sell this fatigue at a very high price. Now, Francis's point was not about purchasing salvation, but about how our Lord values things. Francis knew that our Lord does not despise what is done in the body. He does not despise our physical work. He does not cast it aside like a worthless substance, but he values it far above any worldly employer will. And he treats our sweat shed in righteous deeds like gold. Do you think of your deeds in the body that way? Paul does. How would it change your daily life, your daily mindset, if you began to think more as he does? Paul here in this text has sought to give us a right view of our future hope, a right view of where the glory God has prepared for us is located, so that we might better live out this life now in this body. And he's not the only one who saw that connection. During his earthly ministry, our Lord always had not only his death, but also his bodily resurrection in view. And with that future hope in mind, he was able to give himself fully to those around him. To serve the physically sick and the spiritually sick. The physically needy and the spiritually needy. The physically hungry and the spiritually hungry. The physically dead and the spiritually dead. That was how our Lord lived his life. And he was rewarded for it with a name that is above every other. And so with our eyes also on the fact that we too will one day be raised, just as he was, because of his great grace and mercy towards us. With an eye to the fact that we too will live an everlasting resurrection life. Let us now, in this life, seek to follow in our Lord's footprints, living lives in the body that will please him on that great day, when we will stand before his throne. Amen.